Today, I am pleased to present the second and final guest for our epilogue to the first season. Dr. John Hale is the author of the book Lords of the Sea. It is a compelling look at the history of Athens, largely from the seat of a rower's bench behind an oar. The New York Times has called Dr. Hale an intellectually serious historian who knows how to tell war stories, and I couldn't agree more. Even in our interview, he has a really pleasant way of expressing himself, where he builds up and then lands his answers in a way that I think really reflects his writing well. Of course, we spent a good time inside the wooden walls of a trireme, getting a real feel for how they operate and what it would be like to serve on one of these ships. We also spent some time with the various leaders of Athens. I really enjoy his take on Alcibiades, for instance. And he also provides some salient comparisons to the United States and how our democracy runs as compared to Athens. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. And be sure and pay attention at the end, actually, because he gives us one of the very first previews of the new book he's writing on the Greek and Persian Wars. Enjoy the show. In the end, it's our ideals, our values, that built America. From the crew of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. We close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. So I'm pleased to welcome a guest to the show today. John Hale is the author of the book The Lords of the Sea, which tells the story of the Athenian democracy centered around the incredible navy. He can make the rare claim of visiting every one of the Athenian naval and amphibious battlegrounds while researching the book, and has also conducted extensive underwater surveys while searching for the lost Persian fleets originally organized by Xerxes to invade Greece. He's also a professor of archaeology at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. John Hale, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, just to start out, the story you tell in the first couple pages of your book about how your interest in the Athenian fleet first came about when you were in college is really interesting. Could you tell us about that? Well, to me, now that I'm a teacher myself, it makes me realize how much impact a conversation with a student can have on their future. I was a first-year student at Yale way back in the fall of 69, and on a snowy afternoon, I was walking to the library and saw my very distinguished professor of Greek history coming toward me. His name is Donald Kagan, one of the most important American professors of Greek history of our time. And I didn't realize it was his first semester at Yale also. In fact, I was in class for the first lecture he ever gave there, and he only a couple of years ago retired. So I was in at the start of something, didn't know that then, but I kind of tacked across the snowy sidewalk to make sure he had room. I didn't dream that he even would recognize me out of the huge class that he was teaching, but he did. And he stopped and characteristic of him immediately wanted to know what was I doing at Yale. And when I told him I was rowing, which was a new venture for me, this was before high schools in our part of the country had crews. And so I'd gone out for lightweight crew and it had become the second obsession along with archaeology and the classical world. Well, he said, well, so you're a rower. Well, you can explain something to me. And he proceeded to describe the story in Thucydides, which I'd already read, where in the second year of the Peloponnesian War, the Spartans and their Peloponnesian allies needed to transfer some rowing crews from one side of the Isthmus of Corinth to another, the other side. Not a very long walk. I mean, there's a canal there today, and you can see from sea to sea, but they had to take 
rowing pads with them as well as their oars. And he said, why would they need rowing pads? Once they got where they were going, they didn't have very far to row. So we began talking about that on that snowy afternoon out in the cold, and we talked for about an hour. And I remembered that in the early days of British and American competitive rowing, the sport that I was now part of, they didn't have little sliding seats on wheels such as we have, so we can use the big extensor muscles in the legs to really power the stroke. They took leather, made themselves pads, greased them, and with those they could skid from that seated position so you could get the, the leg drive into a much longer stroke and a much more powerful stroke. And all the, the competitive rowers from the mid-19th century on until the invention of the sliding seat on little tracks in the 20th century, that's how they did it. So he said, well, if that's how they did it, then the Greeks would have had a, a kind of a secret weapon for triremes that could do sharper turns and faster attacks. I said, that's probably true because the triremes in the Persian fleet that, that Xerxes had put together, which are from Egypt and the Palestinian coast and, and Cyprus and elsewhere, they're not necessarily all of them part of that big Greek tradition. And we know that the Phoenician triremes, which were the main center point of the whole Persian armada, they definitely didn't have that going. They were mainly sailing vessels for their huge exploration, colonizing, trading voyages out to the Western Mediterranean and beyond. They were only secondarily warships, so they wouldn't have had any kind of rowing refinement like that. And also, I pointed out, rowing was a sport in ancient Greece the same way it was for colleges then and for many city clubs throughout America now. And that they would have a chance to see what made a boat go faster because they're doing over distance side-by-side races. And it's like you have a lab for seeing what, what little technical things can improve your speed. So it all made sense. And by the time we, we parted on that afternoon in, in 69, uh, he told me, well, you need to look into ancient rowing. So I discovered after several decades of looking into it that I was still working on that assignment. And the result was this book on the Athenian Navy and the aspect of the Navy that I'd worked out and derived again from Professor Kagan's class, which really focused on Athens and Sparta. Sure, that's terrific. And something else I want to pick your brain about is that, I mean, between uh, your time rowing and uh, in college and then doing all the research for this book, which like we were talking about before we started recording, took some time, and also visiting all the different sites of these battlegrounds, I imagine it was not difficult to see these stories really come to life, was it? Well, it was um, like I was living in the 5th century BC a lot of the time. Uh, the, the library at Yale, Sterling Library, there are remote corners of the stacks where you're surrounded by the books and there's no other human being anywhere within sight or earshot and you just feel like you are in the past. And those were very happy times. No, that's terrific. That kind of reminds me of actually of a, a quote I read. The New York Times describes you as an intellectually serious historian who knows how to tell war stories. And I agree, your book is a thrill to read. I really enjoyed it. But I also want to know about the story aspect of history. What do we, why is that important? What do we lose if we leave out this story aspect of history? Well, as you can tell from where we got our word story, which is from Greek historiae, which actually meant researches. That was Herodotus's term. And it got picked up by the Latin language for historia, for people like Tacitus. And by that time, it had come to mean a researched recounting of the past. It meant the researches first. So 
story, which comes from that, means something different. Story is a narrative that informs you about something from a, the past or from a fantasy world or from somebody's life. And it is my belief that we alone among the primates, we have very full language. And I believe language is invented to tell stories. I believe our brains and our memories are designed to retain stories and not facts. And if a fact isn't embedded in a story, it can't be remembered, except by those rare people with photographic memory who just like to retain lists of 100 most important things. So for the average human being, stories are the way to convey what matters in history in a memorable fashion. Hmm. It makes it memorable, gives it more meaning. Yeah. Well, it allows you to keep it in your head instead of go to a reference book every time you need to to look something up. And I'm not interested in reference books except, well, I need them. But for me, for sitting down to read, for trying to communicate important ideas, I will always recommend a history that's written in the narrative form. Because again, I believe that is how history happens, that it is chains of events, uh, beginnings, middle endings that can be great victories or terrible catastrophes or extinction. But it's a story. And I think each of, for each of us, our own life is a story. So that's what we relate to. Huh. No, that makes a lot of sense. And because these stories are real, it's important to get an understanding of the people in them. And I'd like to take a look at the men on these ships. So I was actually in the Navy myself for a while, and my deployment was, coincidentally, eight months, like those of the Athenian Navy would be. <laughs> right. Where, where were you deployed? Uh, I was out. We basically circled Africa and came back. I floated Is off the coast of Iran for a while. Right. Wow. Right. But the difference here, though, is that on the ships that I was at, I could just live at sea for months. But yeah. triremes did not have that luxury. Can you give us a short day in the life of what it would have looked like to be on one of these? Yeah. Well, for somebody who cut my teeth, as, as maybe many did half a century ago, on the Forrester's Horatio Hornblower stories about the British Navy in the time of the Napoleonic Wars, where they're at sea for months, and we'll get vittles up over the sides from bumboats that bring it out from a harbor and the men aren't allowed on shore. The trireme is a torpedo. What propels it is the, the crew inside. The sails are left behind for battles. It's the men at the oars who, who are rowing it, who are the propulsion. And they can't carry enough food on board for more than snacks. So they are followed by by ships that, that carry their food. They will have way stations all along major routes. This is why the Athenian naval empire was so important. So at every island, every major beach with a spring where you could get water, their, their triremes could, could come ashore. They needed them at six hours distance from each other because they needed to spend the night at one. They needed to have a midday break at the next. They needed to spend the next night six hours further on and hop all the way around the med that way. This is the, the pattern, this is the dynamic, this is the constraint on using a trireme that no other ship type has, because you've got to get those 200 men, 170 rowers, at least 10 marines, and then 20 or so officers and sailors. You've got to get them on shore all night long, every night, for their, their dinner, and, and in the middle of the day, they've got to have a meal on shore and a water break. So really, you'd probably only spend maximum a few hours at a time on a trireme? There was a case when Athens had voted to execute a lot of Greeks who had rebelled against them on a distant island, Samos, and then realized, what were we thinking? Execute all these people? Is this any way to govern an empire? So they sent a second trireme after the first, which was carrying the execution order. And it was going, the first one was going in the regular method of nights on shore, midday meal on another island, next night on a more distant shore. The second one 
rode without stopping. And they describe the crew members, the sailors and so on, walking along the benches and giving the men water and giving them food. They would give them uh, wheat cakes sopped in wine to eat. It was like power bars so they could <laughs> row without stopping. And they did catch up with the other ship just as the execution order was being read in the marketplace. So that's a wonderful window that Thucydides gives us on the difference between emergency measures of row all, all the time and the normal means. Yeah, that's an incredible story. I mean, that's one we covered in one of our episodes, but it, that gives an entirely new understanding of it, yeah. knowing how small these conditions would be. So uh, another comparison here, just for some context, the ship that I was on was over 500 feet long, and it had a crew of about 350, and it still felt crowded at times, but the Athenians would have laughed at me a little bit there. I mean, their ships weren't much over 100 feet long, and they had about 200 people on them. If you were on one of these triremes, obviously, and you're down there and you're rowing, you're right next to the men next to you. If you were on the lower levels, you really couldn't even see outside much, could you? That's correct. The portholes in the uh, lower two tiers of, of rowers, there are holes cut in the hull, but then there are leather sleeves over them that nestle around your, the shaft of your oar making that whole watertight, but also completely blocking the view and kind of blocking ventilation. So it was not considered a very desirable position to be the Thalamian, the third and lowest tier of rowers down in the bilge for all kinds of reasons. You're getting sweated on by guys above and other unpleasantnesses. <laughs> sure. Uh, so really the closest comparison, I think, most of us can make to being a rower on one of these tri rooms would be the middle seat of a very small, hot, cramped airplane. If everybody were naked, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very important distinction. Yeah. Um, but then in these conditions, they would try to fight a battle. So between this limited visibility and the huge number of oars moving at one time, it sounds like if you're just reading about a trireme on paper, it seems like these things would be really unwieldy and hard to steer, but they were incredibly mobile. How did they pull this off? Well, one thing I'm grateful to my rowing time in. Uh, I was never much good at single skulls. It just seems unnatural to have an oar in both hands. And I, I'm a sociable person, so I like fitting in with a crew. You've got a coxswain. You've got someone whose job is to not pull the oar, but to pull the rudder strings, look ahead. Everybody else, all the rowers are facing backward. They can't see what's ahead. The coxswain's looking ahead for them. The coxswain is steering. The coxswain is giving all the commands. That was divided among several officers on the trireme. The trireme had a a kelustes, a caller, a shouter, it's, it's cognate with our word call, kelustes, K-E-L, instead of C-A-L-L. And that's the person who relays to the crew the commands about the speed of the rowing, which side should be pulling harder in order to start executing a turn. And that person has with them a piper, an aulates. Aulos, it's where we get the word hydraulics. Water through a pipe is from this aulos, A-U-L-O-S. And that person is essential because the voice in a, in a ship that's, that's so long, I mean, the rowing area itself is over 100 feet long, packed with men. The, the creaking of the ship makes a lot of noise, the clanking of the oars, everything. They've got to have a high-pitched sound. And this is a, a medieval instrument survived from this aulos of the uh, Greeks. It was called a shawm, and it's like the chanter of a bagpipe without the bag. So you've got an oboe, an overgrown oboe, and you've covered it with a sheath. So not, your lips aren't touching the reed. And when you blow hard into that, it makes the reed vibrate. 
So it's like an organ. It's like a reed in an organ. And it is so powerful. It is so potent. You can get a sense of it if you imagine a bagpipe sound without the, the extra pipes that give you that, that chord underneath the drone. You've just got the melody. And they would play march tunes and other things that were in beat. I'm sure it helped pass the time. Athenians loved music and all the Greeks did. But at the same time, you've got a rhythm now. And so without somebody having to continually shout themselves hoarse, because all the player has to do is blow into the end. If, if you're actually doing an oboe, which is that reed that makes that sound, bassoons do the same thing, English horns, your lips get tired. They're, those parts don't go on for, for half an hour. They can because you can't do it. But if all you're doing is blowing in, then, then it's feasible. So they had worked out an instrument that would be penetrating in sound, loud in, in volume, and able to make that whole interior of the ship kind of ring with its sound. And they'd play march tunes, they'd play signals, everybody could hear it, everybody kept in time. Okay, that's terrific. All right, so we've taken a look at the trireme here and established how dangerous it is and how effective it is based on the training that they had. But it was really more than just a method of battle, too. It served a lot of roles in the empire. They'd guard important coasts, they'd carry in tribute from foreign cities, it really is what made the empire possible at all, wasn't it? Yes. And another thing that it does is carry officials to their, their positions. Athens was generating people we might call governors, but folks who would be the voice of Athens in all parts of the Athenian empire, from the Western Med to Egypt, to the far ends of the Black Sea, up the Adriatic, the, the coast of France where Marseille is today. Athenians were everywhere. And they needed the voice of Athenians because Athens is a real democracy. America's not. Athens is a democracy where every citizen, A, has one vote and all votes are plebiscites. We could do it too now that we've got internet because we could all go every time there's something for our government to do and vote yay or nay. We could all do it. We would then be a true democracy as Athens was then. They had 30,000 citizens who could all fit into the assembly space in Athens and through shows of hands or through their, their juries, which may have hundreds of people on a jury. None of this 12-person nonsense, which guarantees you hung juries on a very regular basis. And you got to have endless, endless reviews of, of who's going to be on the jury because uh, you don't want unfairness. Well, if you got 101 people voting or 1,001 in, in cases of some big juries, you got every possible prejudice represented evenly. And because there's always one extra above the even number, there can never be a hung jury. And they also demanded that trials be done in one day. So you had, everybody had to present. So they've got a great working system for justice. Ours is a mess. But then we've, we basically ignored Athens in everything we've done in America. We've gone after the Roman Republic instead. We like the senators and we like all these different things because it, well, I won't even go into why I think we did, but we certainly turned our back on Athens. But these triremes are the muscle of Athenian rule and democracy, and they are trying to establish democracies everywhere. It's interesting, though, that you are talking about triremes and you immediately go into the jury of Athens. And what I'm getting at here is that today in the United States, I, I mean, I can't speak to other countries, but in the United States, there's a real difference between an active military personnel and then your average citizen, just as far as an identity. They're two different entities, and they play two different roles in society. But in Athens, these two identities would have really blended together to where you really couldn't tell one from the other. The people that were rowing the ships were also the people that were there in the courts. I would go further even than the way you just phrased it and say they wouldn't have been able to understand 
our system where the military is a thing apart from the mass of the population. That wouldn't make sense to them at all. Citizens, full citizens, and remember our laboring class did not become full citizens till they could become combatants by pulling oars in warships. All citizens need to be have equal access to the rights in jury trials and to guiding the decisions of their state and the making of laws and and choices on, on war and peace by going to the popular assemblies. And even the Spartans did this. They had a tighter franchise than, than the Athenians, but it was equally expected that that's just what it is to be a citizen. So we, we would not look like a democracy to them. I don't know what we would look like. They would just think we're a big dysfunctional thing that's made for the benefit of some but not for the many, and certainly not for the benefit of any ideal of equality in terms of expectations that you will serve, opportunity to rise to a general where you can become one of the 10 annually elected who will guide the, as a board of generals, guide the war and peace decisions of your city-state of Athens. And the, the trireme then became for them the, the engine that made all this last for the time of the Persian Wars right down to when Alexander the Great, well, his father Philip took over Athens and crushed the democracy and exiled most of the demos because these, these working class citizens had been causing all the trouble with their triremes and their fleets. They had been imposing Athenian will and building up imperial domains and they didn't want anybody else on that block. So Athens had to go and the first thing they did was exile the demos, which had been empowered by Themistocles and his his decisions on creating triremes, giving all of these poor laboring citizens who don't own land a chance to now be full participants in Athens' military effort because they row. So you touched on this just now, but the Navy, it had a pretty wide arc of leadership. As far as styles, most of it did, like you say, come from the aristocratic class. But it's impossible to really cover all of them in detail. And so I kind of have to apologize here. But probably the cut that I regret the most during the show is the admission of Formio. Could you <laughs> tell me why? Yeah, I know. You should laugh. Um, could you tell me why he really was such a pivotal character in establishing the reputation of Athens? Yeah. Well, on that very first uh, 1969 snowy afternoon talk with uh, Professor Kagan, I was already under the spell of Formio, P-H-O-R-M-I-O, Formion in uh, Greek in the nominative case. He is a, a fellow who was of the upper class, not a not a 50 bushel man of the millionaire class that's that's going to be just floating in at the level of of general, but but a landowner. And he's got land not too far from Athens, a little farm, and he's rearing up a family. His son, Asopus, also became a general after him. But he is, to me, the quintessential master of strategy. He can be out there with a, a fleet that is outnumbered three to one by the enemy. He can have every possible thing against him. So far from home, he can never expect that Athens will be able to send him reinforcements in time. And yet he always finds a way. And what I like so much about Formio is, A, that determination that he will fight. And he will also, as, as some generals don't, they'll have a great plan going in, but if things start to go awry... They don't always have a Formio-like quality of like an improviser on the keyboard. As new things come into play, you start shifting your themes and the development of the material. The battle is like that to him. 
It's a drama in action. And he's always looking for changes in the wind, distant uh, arrivals of, of uh, new triremes, either for him or for the enemy and, and the positions. Cause it's like a dance out there on the, on the sea in a way that never happens in land battles. Trireme fleets are so mobile and the individual triremes can move so fast and you can detach a small squadron to, to row around a headland, take the enemy from the rear, all kinds of things. That is Formio's mastery. And the people loved him for this. And he appears again and again in the comedies that Aristophanes and Eupolis and the other uh, Athenian playwrights uh, write, where in tragedy, you couldn't ever name a living person because tragedy was for gods and heroes. In comedy, it's all about making fun of uh, living persons. Pericles on down, kings of Persia show up, everything. Sorry, the emissaries of the kings of Persia show up in comedies. But Formio is treated really apart from the others as the ideal of the working Athenian democratic citizen, a man who was poor himself. Uh, he was, a, he was a clearly of distinguished ancestry, but a small farm, and he worked it himself, it appears. And, and somebody that, that the whole demos of Athens, the, the 20,000 strong laboring class now empowered because they're rowing, they took him as their hero. And based on his strategic genius, I think that was fully justified. Uh, yeah, thanks for fleshing that out. But there are some characters that you really can't help but include when you're talking about the Athenian Navy. Of course, Themistocles being one, yeah. right? And then who essentially founded the Navy. And then later we have Pericles, who at first was kind of a diplomat and then brought it into its golden age. And he also became a real warrior himself. Yes. But both of these men had very different leadership styles. Even though we see the Athenian Navy you know, evolve and change, it went under several different leadership styles. Can you kind of give us a comparison there? Sure. One of the most interesting aspects to, to the story of the Athenian Navy for me is you've got a century and a half where one democratic city-state is electing to its highest positions, the archons who preside over the, the assemblies, the generals who ultimately become contenders for head of state because Athens is so navalized that the, the men in charge of its fleets and to a lesser extent its land armies become those who shape the destiny of the city. And so to be a, a general, a strategos, from which we get our word strategy, that guarantees you a voice in the assembly, that guarantees you something that is less clear in the printed pages of Herodotus and Thucydides and Xenophon, but you've got a group that's behind you. You've got followers. You've got uh, citizens who have thrown in their lot with you. And part of this is self-interest. They know if you get into to office, there are certain plums that can, that can be steered their way. Generals are in charge of appointing all sorts of citizens. So we, there's, a, there's an element of self-interest. But with, with many of them, like Pericles, uh, Formio, who's strategic, we mainly hear about his, his serving as general. Mainly we hear about out on the water where he's with the fleets. But they all of them have the power to become what Themistocles and Pericles were, men who use their generalship to become de facto heads of state and involved in all of the decision-making, what we would call the foreign office, the bureaucracy, the state department. That's them. And they, they still have to collaborate. They have to work with the board of generals, of which they're only one out of not, uh, 10 generals altogether. And then they have to work with the assembly, which is this many-headed beast of tens of thousands of Athenian citizens who have to be reasoned with, have to be understood. You've got to work behind the scenes as with any good political system. And it's all local. We have a fond way of saying that in our own thing. Well, it was all local for them too. So generals of Athens were like no other leaders in history. Even the Roman Republic, the senators who typically become 
the great leaders in, in the Roman Republic. They're all from the senatorial class. Well, they're wealthy landowners. They're part of the power elite from the moment they are born. And a number of generals, like Themistocles, like Formio, there's no trail that they they were of this uh, sort of Fortune 500. They got there on their own abilities, and they're the ones who really made Athens. Hmm. So speaking of different leadership styles, Alcibiades. We've covered quite a few of his outrageous activities in previous episodes of the show, but one of my favorite ones I think you point out is that when this poet makes fun of him in a play and then later serves on his ship, he takes that poet and has him dunked in the sea a couple times? Yes, that's right. That was uh, Eupolis, is the, the comic poet, and Alcibiades had a very tender spot where his vanity resided, and he didn't like being mocked in the theater. Certainly. So is he crazy, or is he crazy like a fox? Is there something in between going on here? I'd just like to hear your, your general take on Alcibiades and his leadership style. My general take on Alcibiades is he's the most interesting leader in human history because he is the most impossible for us to truly understand. All we can do is see this extraordinary sequence of rises and falls, of triumphs and utter defeats, of risk-taking that pays off and risk-taking that results in utter, utter catastrophe. He seems to have been someone who on some level never grew up. <laughs> Athenians allowed almost any license to the folks we would call teenagers. They called them Ephebes, E-P-H-E-B-E. And that's a time for experimenting. And that goes back to the old tribal roots where, you know, women are what count in any society if you're going to look to the future because women are the future. The children they bear are the, are the, are the future. All you need is enough men to provide a little impregnation and also defend the women and the kids. So... Alcibiades absolutely characterizes the, the ideal warrior mentality of, at any moment, I'm willing to die for this. Hmm. He seems to have been absolutely fearless, physically fearless. So that's part of the initial mystique. And we can't really say that about, about Pericles, who always seems to have been a steady, cautious, intellect in full play. Alcibiades is as intellectual as any of them. He knew all the great poets. He's a friend of Sophocles. He's a major figure in Athenian culture, society, their self-image of themselves. But he's also, if we think back to and just one little aspect, those Kennedy years, Kennedy was one of the youth, most youthful seeming presidents America's ever had. Part of the glow that, that for, for some Americans hangs around that period was it seemed like a time of youth, mm -hmm. of possibility, of fresh start. And I think that's what Alcibiades conveyed to many of his fellow citizens in Athens, and that's what they never gave up on, is that belief that he can turn things around. And he won enough battles against all odds, and often by risk-taking, by things that by chance turned out right. Um, I have a, a long section on, on some battles he won where, in the end, it's just his own lion-like ferocious courage and daring, just wading ashore and, and starting to get out his own sword and, and, and lead his troops straight into the, the enemy ranks at, at the front of, of his troops, he could become possessed. Sometimes he's a, uh, possessed by the god of war. Sometimes, unfortunately, he's possessed by that most troubling of all Greek gods, Dionysus, who is the god of altered states. And whether you're drunk or you're acting a part in the theater, Dionysus is presiding over you. And he's got his grip on Alcibiades. So it's, he's a very tragic figure in the end. But boy, when he's on, there's nobody like him. <laughs> I, I love that take on him. There are several scenes where 
I'm reading about him, and one being the Battle of Sisychus, where he basically just... That's my favorite one. Exactly. I mean, even outside of his strategy with leading the ships out. Yeah. But then... But then he forgets the strategy. Right. And almost single-handedly attacks the beach. It's just incredible. It is incredible. And that's all there in uh, Thucydides and Xenophon. So uh, we got eyewitness accounts lead straight into our contemporary historians writing about this, this puzzle of a man who who was seemed to be half lion, half divine hero, half uh, mortal with feet of clay. They didn't know what to do with him, and we still don't know what to do with him. Sure. Okay, well, getting closer to the end here, but wrapping up, I, I do have a bit of a, a few tangential questions I wanted to ask you that we can use to close out here. Sure. But one of them is that you mentioned that later on the Vikings actually took on a very similar rowing style to the Athenians. I thought that was really fascinating. They did in some ways, but they didn't get into this greased buckskin thing that allows you to get a good, probably more than nine inches or so of shove with those big leg muscles. But they were very interested in maximizing it. So what they would do, and the Venetians did this too, they would often lean so far forward their their butts are coming up off the rowing thwart, the seat, and then they can get a longer reach that way. You've got to have your feet lower down. You're on a proper bench rather than on just a... Uh, sort of a slide where your feet are almost at a level where your rear end is. And so they are finding another way to get the big muscles of the body involved and not just the arms. So, and the Venetians do it also in their wonderful galleys. So they never duplicated what the Athenians did, but they are, they are working it toward the same result through a different means. Hmm. So I've got two questions here that we usually use to wrap up interviews, but the first one is that the majority of your work at centers around naval and maritime archaeology, But if you had to pick another area to focus on, what would it be, even if it was another branch of archaeology? I'm working on a book now for Oxford University Press on the Greek and Persian Wars, where I've asked them to let me do the whole hundred years from 547 BC when Cyrus the Persian first faces some mercenary Greek hoplites in the army of King Croesus of Lydia, and he can't beat them, all the way to a hundred years later when uh, one of the veterans of the Battle of Salamis on the Persian side, a great figure named Artabazos, is called out of retirement 30 years after the, the Battle of Salamis to come down and take a Persian army and end Athenian imperialism, which is threatening to do what Alexander did, take over the Persian Empire. And he manages to stop them in Egypt, which had been the site of, of a great series of battles as the Persians took over Egypt from first uh, the Egyptian kings and then from Greeks also. So, yeah, what I'm interested in is collisions of cultures. The Greek and Persians are worlds apart. And Greeks, Athenians have great interest to us because our democratic ideals, which they made reality and which we salute and kind of incorporate in our system. But there could be no greater contrast between those democratic ideals and the monarchic situation of Persia, where one, you've almost got a god king in charge. But the other thing that comes on with democracy is free enterprise. And the ancient world had never seen free enterprise until these Greek city-states got into the idea that part of the function of a city-state, and was picked up by the Italian city-states in the Renaissance, is to give dynamic, energetic citizens a chance to get rich. And we certainly think that's what 
America's all about, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that pursuit is often economic, business-oriented, bettering yourself and your family. And that comes along with this democracy, that democratic outlook. We're much more like Athens in that combination of democratic ideals and a free enterprise system. And this book I'm working on for Oxford is trying to say that this is where West breaks from East. And yes, we've got democracy to talk about, but the real difference is this free enterprise, the empowering of energetic citizens in the West to go out and seek not just glory in battle, but economic prosperity. Is there a title to the book yet? It's called At Break of Day. And if we've got, I think we have enough time, I will give you the short uh, quote from Lord Byron that I, I take At Break of Day from. Uh, and then the subtitle is uh, How the Greek and Persian Wars Launched the Rise of the West. But we're with Lord Byron in Greece. He spent a lot of time there in his youth. And he went to the site of the Battle of Salamis. And he saw the little hill where King Xerxes, back in 480 in the autumn, had a throne set up so he could sit up there from dawn onward and watch his thousand ships, as he hoped, destroy the 300 triremes of the assembled Greek force. Well, it didn't work out that way. The Battle of Salamis went the other way, but Byron has this beautiful set of lines about that. A king sat on a rocky brow that looks o'er seaborne Salamis, and ships in thousands lay below, and men in nations, all were his. He counted them at break of day, and when the sun set, where were they? So at break of day comes from that. But it's to convey the idea that these Greek and Persian wars, that century of warfare, is when the modern world began. That's when Europe gets recognized as a continent, which it ain't. It's just a Western extension of Asia. And that was when this free enterprise, the business model, came in. It's been systematically suppressed at times. Certainly in the Middle Ages, it was very hard under the feudal system to, to get that going. But that's why it eventually ended. That wasn't true to the Western spirit. So this is what I'm trying to write. Okay. No, that's really interesting. I look forward to the, that coming out. And then uh, just to close here, just one final question. Is there any particular historical scene or even just thought from 5th century Greece or that era that has really stuck with you, but you generally think is overlooked today. Could you leave us with what we might be missing? Wow. Missed today. Um, yes, I'll give it to you. Let's go back to the Battle of Marathon, where we have this fiction that one runner ran all the way back from Marathon and uh, 27 miles, and his name was Pheidippides, and he collapsed in the marketplace in Athens, and with his last breath before he died of the effort, uh, shouted, Nike, victory. And that was a Roman fiction because the Romans had given up on long distance running and didn't get that Pheidippides was a real person. He'd already run 150 miles. He ran from Athens to Sparta to tell the Spartans that the Persians were coming. Then he ran all the way back to Athens. Then he found that the Athenian army had gone to Marathon. So he ran the 27 miles out there to tell that at the time of the next full moon, the, the Spartans had promised to come so the 10 generals would know that. And that's the big run. And now that our extreme sports have gotten us there in the late 20th and the 21st century, we can appreciate that it was all true. The Romans were wrong to disregard this and boil him down to a little 27-mile run back from Marathon to Athens. The whole Athenian army made that run because they had to get back once they'd beaten the stump and rump of the, the Persian force that had been left at Marathon. They had then to run back to Athens with their gear to be there on the beach when all the commanders of the expedition, the Persians, the Medes, the cavalry and their ships, and probably most of the army, had spent the time, probably a 24-hour period, including night rowing, rowing all the way from Marathon 
on the northeast side of Attica, the promontory of Athens, all the way around Cape Sunio in the south, all the way back to Athens. And when Datis, the Mede, general assigned by King Darius to conquer Athens, got there, there's the whole Athenian army, which he had last seen at Marathon more than 24 hours before, appearing as if by a nightmare on the beach to prevent him from landing and taking Athens. So that's the miracle to me. And it's going to be in this book because I, well, I started after Marathon for the uh, Lords of the Sea. But I really want to focus on that. It's a whole city-state of athletes, of endurance people, of folks who get it in terms of that sound mind and a sound body. It's not just some kind of a theoretical ideal. The first important democracy in history thought it was the mission of every citizen to reach that ideal. Huh, that's really terrific. Well, John Hale, thank you for taking the time and thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you again to Dr. Hale for joining us. And if you have any interest in the story of Athens, be sure and pick up his book, Lords of the Sea. It is compelling and full of action while also effortlessly building your understanding of Athens. It's the kind of book you can read and learn without feeling like you're there to try and learn. Of course, I'll have links on the website for the book, but you can find Lords of the Sea just about anywhere books are sold. Now, finally, thank you very much for listening to the now-completed first season of History in the Making. It's been a pleasure to produce the show over the past two years. Although the second season likely won't launch until November, I do plan on spending time over the summer reading, preparing, building storylines, that kind of thing. So there will be work going on for the show. It'll just be behind the scenes for the next several months. Now, if you haven't already, please leave a review for the show on iTunes. Uh, it only takes a few minutes of your time, costs you nothing, and it really helps the show. If you'd like to support the show further, consider joining us on Patreon. You can find a link on the show's website, that's hitmpodcast.com, or go directly to the Patreon site at patreon.com slash hitmpodcast. Donate whatever you like per episode and receive exclusive access to the show and additional content for your donations. And thank you very much to the folks who are already on Patreon. You folks are making the show happen, and it is very appreciated. Finally, if you have enjoyed the show, share the show. Thank you to all of you who are sharing it across the internet or telling your friends and family. The show has been growing, and that is thanks to you. Now, just to wrap up, if you would like to stay in touch over the summer, there are many ways to do so. You can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at HITM Podcast, and always get in touch through the website, that's HITMPodcast.com. If you have questions about the show, critiques, or just want to say hi, I always love to hear it. Now then, it has been a pleasure, folks, and thank you for listening.